0: First Peter, uh, chapter number one. Let you remain seated. I just want to get us a, a, a keep the bird's eye view of where we're going. I hope you're reading this. I hope you're benefiting from this. I keep, I'm going to keep saying it because I have good intentions. We're going to get going here eventually. Every time I think I'm going to grab a hold of a chunk of verses and we're going to make some progress. I feel like, but, but I've got, I've got to, to deal with this, he put it here, and uh, so I don't want to don't want to minimize, but I also don't want to get so down into the minutia of it that we end up uh, fabricating messages just for the sake of having a sermon. I don't want us to come away with sermons. I want us to get the message that God put in there. But remember, if you uh, if you've been going along with us, the first twelve verses, Peter was celebrating. God's goodness, our great God, the God that we serve. And, and that's really what he was talking about. No commands in the first 12 verses. We don't get to the first command until after the 12th verse. And this is a review. It's an open book review. And uh, what is the very first imperative command that's given to us? Y'all all flunk. The first command is hope. Hope. That's the first command. You say no. There's other commands. No. The main primary command, the first primary command in First Peter is hope. The other commands are auxiliary helpers. They're 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 um, they're helping the main verb. They're helping the main command. The first. Foremost command of 1 Peter in which the, the book is centered around is that of hope. Hope. Notice in verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. Why? So you can hope. Be sober. Why? So you can hope. Here's the first primary command. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about a decided hope. If you're a child of God, you need to decide I'm going to put hope in God, not wishful thinking, not necessarily a, I know this is going to happen kind of a thing, but a hope in the sense of my confidence is full and overflowing because it is based upon, it is centered on, it is saturated with God, hope in God. You put your hope in man, you're going to be in the mess. We put our hope in the economy, we're going to be in trouble. If you put your hope in Hollywood, well, you might be entertained, but you'll be disappointed. You put your hope in athleticism and the sports and that part, you're you're going to be disappointed sometime or another. Hope in God, you'll never be disappointed. And so that's the first command. Uh, A healthy mind, a sober life, which he says in verse 13, that is the, the ways in which it'll help us live with a decided hope in God. All right, second command. What was the second command? Be holy. So hope in God, and God is the source of our hope. Be holy. And God is the standard of our holiness. Holiness is not a... Fundamentalism, King James idea, it's God, as it, who God is. And if you're part of His family, He says, be holy. He says in verse 14, as obedient children. Can you be disobedient? Yeah. But you're probably not hoping in God. You're probably not living with sobriety. You're probably not. And he's talking about sobriety of spirit, very aware of this is not my life. This is his life. This is not my game. This is his life. He paid a tremendous cost for what you and I are taking ownership of. And we're not owners of it. We're stewards of it. And he says in verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lust and your ignorance. So you take the you before you're saved. Do you dress, look any different than the you after you met Jesus? And he said, it should be something different there should be a noticeable difference fashioning refers to clothing and um, I mean you, you that's that's every every way you look at it every aspect of the the word and he's referring to how we conduct our life verse 15 but as he which hath called you is holy so be ye holy in all manner of conversation it's not your voice your speech conversation old english word it's your lifestyle every aspect of your life do you have a church life and work life Jesus doesn't Jesus has a Jesus life always and when he saved you he moved inside of you so you don't have to have church life work life like you do church clothes work clothes He's not a garment you put on. He is a person, if you're saved, who lives within, which should affect the garments you might put on. He is the difference maker. And so hope, decided hope, holy living. The third command, we looked at it uh, two weeks ago. The third command is fear, live in fear. We see that in verse 17. And if you call on the Father... Who, without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's word, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, we said last two weeks ago in this message on fear, two aspects of fear. One is to fear and have a divine terror towards the divine one. And remember, we talked about Jonathan Edwards, where the Great Awakening was started out of, who preached that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We talked about the the message of the Bible. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're familiar with religion, but you're not sure of a relationship with Jesus, you have reason to fear. Because you don't get another chance after you've taken your last breath. You don't get a do-over at the end of this life. But we also talked about another aspect of fear, and that is to live with a reverence and an awe for God. When you look at who He is, the Creator, when we understand who He is, the Sustainer, it ought to cause us just to be in awe as to the, the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of our God. But we introduced that and I felt like I really didn't do it justice to really help us take it in context as to the significance of this matter of fear. And so this morning, I want us to understand and look at this matter of fear in the sense of a divine terror as far as a concern. Not just being in awe of who he is, but also having some aspect of trepidation. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 verse 27 and verse 31, 27 says, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, verse 31, Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, excuse me, verse 10 and 11 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Fear. And so there is a sense in which we should have this awe and reverence for God. But there's also a healthy sense in which we should have some concern that would even bring us to trepidation and conviction. What is this matter of fear? What is Peter's stance on fear? And So I want us to take these few moments that we have and look at How are we to fear God? So how are we to fear God? And let's focus our attention on how Peter sees fearing God and how he connects them to two things within our context. Notice again, verse 17, the command, this is the third command of 1 Peter. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, And on either side of that command, we find reasons to conduct ourselves in fear. So you see on the screen in the green, sojourning here in fear. Before that, he gives one reason, one way to live in fear. And after that statement on fear, he gives the second. And I want us to take these two this morning to have a better concept because that's the way God put it here, and have this appreciation and understanding, how are we to fear? If it's the command by God, that means it's not an option. Means it's not just a good idea. It is a command, and God will hold us accountable, adds to our allegiance to his word and to our, our obedience to his command. So I want you to see really two points this morning, two thoughts. In verse number 17, because of the command to fear God, he gives us a reason, a motivation, a basis as to why we should fear him. And number one, because of the basis of God's judgment we should fear God because of the basis of God's judgment. Notice in verse 17, and if you call on the father, so he's referring to people who are the children of God. He's not referring to those who believe in orthodox Christianity. You can believe in the concept. You say, I'm not a, I'm I'm not of another religion, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Muslim, I, I believe in Christianity according to the Bible. Well, he's not talking about those who just believe in the concept, he's talking about those who literally have become, who've been birthed into the family of God by the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. So he's saying those who call upon God as their father, Every person born into this world can refer to him as God because that's who he is. But only his children can refer to him as father. So he says, because, verse 17, you call him the father. Notice what he says, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. Because of the basis of God's judgment, we should fear. We should live in fear. Fear in the sense of the judgment and justice of God. So the first reason for conducting ourselves in fear is that the one we call Heavenly Father judges every one of His children on the same evidence and activity as it is a reflection of our heart. In other words... He doesn't have different rules for different children. There's one requirement for salvation. It's faith. What is the requirement in essence, if we were to boil it down to the basic requirement of the Christian life? It's faith. Colossians 2 and verse 6, as ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Immediately after the rapture, there will be a, a judgment for God's children, known as the judgment seat of Christ. He refers to that in 2 Corinthians 5. I read that earlier. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. The judgment seat of Christ. What is Jesus judging? At his judgment. Well, he's not judging his children, God's people. He's not judging their sin. Some have said that if you don't have, if you have any unconfessed sin, it'll be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. No. He's not dealing with sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Some have said, well, any sin that didn't get confessed at the very end, that's what's going to be dealt with. No, he's not dealing with sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because he dealt with that at the cross. And when a person gets saved, you accept his payment for your sin and his having dealt with your sin at the cross. So for thousands of years before Jesus died, those in the Old Testament got saved the exact same way that I got saved. They were just looking forward to the cross. And we, for the last 2,000 years, are looking back at what Jesus did at the cross. And we agree with the songwriter, if you're saved, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. And so it's the cross. So what is it then that he's judging at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, what is he going to do? What is referred to at the judgment seat of Christ that he does with those he's judging? Well, he talks about the matter of giving a reward or withholding a reward. So every believer, the judgment seat of Christ, will receive a reward or lose a reward. He refers to that being that which we've done. He will uh, discern. He will judge all the things we've done, whether they be good or bad. And he will discern as to whether or not they will withstand the fire and whether it's wood, hay and stubble kind of a life or whether it will be that of a valuable, uh, uh, precious stone that will make it through the fire. In other words, something that will reflect who he is. So what is it the judgment seat of Christ is about? Well, what is the reward? The reward, he talks about crowns, giving a crown. What will a Christian do with a crown if he were to get one, if she were to get one at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, she's not gonna wear them. He's not gonna wear them. He's going to put it right back at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because the judgment seat of Christ is not about how great you and I were here. The judgment seat of Christ is all about who were you depending upon after you got saved? Who were you depending upon? It's not, but I was a preacher. I was an evangelist. I was a pastor. I was a soul winner. The question Jesus would ask then, and he will give the answer to is, who are you depending upon? We do know in Matthew 7 that there will be some preachers who will go to hell, not because of their poor preaching, aren't we thankful for that, but because they never got saved. Judas Iscariot was in the school of Jesus Christ and went to hell, not because he was bad, he just did not get saved. How do you get saved? Well, you've got to understand sin is the problem, hell is your destination, Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin, I don't want to go to hell, I need Jesus and you put your faith and trust, dependence upon him, that's how you get saved. And once I'm saved, he says, walk the same way, live the same way. You see, many people, religion is all about do the best you can, do the best you can, do the best you can. And there are people who hope that they're going to heaven because they've done the best they could. But listen, the best that we do is never enough to get us into heaven. That's why Jesus came, he died, was buried and rose again. And that is sufficient. So we live the Christian life the same way we got saved, by depending upon Him. You say, you don't do anything? No, there's a lot of things we do. But Jesus is going to discern at the judgment seat of Christ, who are you depending upon? Yourself? Your own strength? Your own power? Or were you depending upon Him? Jesus said, John 15, 5, you know this, without me you can do nothing. (laughs) Nothing. nothing of value, nothing of power. So he says, live in dependence upon him. And so he's telling us here, there is a judgment. And we ought to be recognizing that he's going to judge us based upon the, the, the standpoint of who are you depending upon? Who have you been putting your faith in? And so therefore we ought to fear because of the basis of God's judgment. Listen, fear living as though your faith were not in God. Peter's saying, fear living the Christian life different than how you got it. He's saying, fear living with confidence in yourself fear living independent of god peter says this is the very appropriate fear as we live our lives namely a fear of living as though our faith or our hope it were not in god That's the issue. See, people get hung up on all the rules and all the do's and don'ts and some will accuse, well, that's what you do. You're getting hung up on, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I want to say, I'm not hung up on that. I'm just hung up on God. And when you get to a place of understanding that God, the one who saved you, he saved you by faith. And if you live the Christian life, the only way you're going to live it is by faith, or you're not living the Christian life, you're living the I life. And he says, if you're living independent of him, you ought to be fearful. Because you have a father who's not like an earthly father. He doesn't get tired of loving and correcting his children. So the link between verse 17 and verse 13 where he says, have a decided hope, be overflowing with hope in God. Verse 17, he's saying that living in hope and living in fear, they coincide. What are we to fear? Again, he's saying we ought to fear having a posture in our life where we're not hoping in God, where we're not living in confident expectation of God. And he says in verse 17, uh, he judgeth everybody, and he says, without respect of persons. He doesn't play favorites. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, here's, 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 here, here are my disciples, I'll let them off. No, he was harder on them. You say, well, what about Peter, James, and John? Oh, he was harder on them. How about Peter? He was harder on him. In other words, he, he's, he, he's not inconsistent. And sometimes people may have the wrong notion. Well, preacher's kids, they, they, they get it easier. Not if you're an in Ingram. Yeah, if my kids were living in your house, they could say some things they couldn't say in the Ingram home. They may wear some things they wouldn't wear in the Ingram home. They might get away with some things that they ain't getting away with in the Ingram home. But I'm not nearly as consistent as God is. Because of his children, he's a loving father. And he's trying to help us to understand that we got saved by faith, not by doing the best we can. Why would you want to go back then? He says to this bondage of just trying to gut it out and work it out and Feel your way through when you can just live in hope-filled expectation, trust, and obey. It's a good way to live. Even if we can't figure it out in the verses when we sing it, it's still a good way to live. When we're tempted to conduct ourselves in a way that we show that our hope is in money rather than God, we should fear. When we're tempted to act in a way that would show that our hope is in the pleasure of pornography instead of God. Well, we should fear. First Corinthians 6:18, Paul says, flee fornication. In other words, what he meant was fear what it would mean about your hope if you were to commit fornication. Fear getting yourself in a place where you yield to something else outside of the satisfying pleasure and power of God. Well, that just went over real well with you, didn't it? So I was going to skip these and get to the second one, but I'm not because you didn't get it. So we're going to go after it some more here. It's the same spirit that Jesus had when he says, if your eye is what causes you to stumble, he said, pluck it out. For everyone who's sleeping, you can blame them that this is, they've added five extra minutes to this message because they didn't get it. If your hand is what causes you to stumble, he says, cut it off. Now, Jesus didn't mean literally put your finger in there and pluck your eye out, but he was giving an imagery that you ought to do whatever it takes to not put yourself in a situation where you will live with a confidence in something else outside of God. Fear living in a way that betrays your lack of satisfaction in God. That's why people who, if you were to ever see them outside of church, you wouldn't think that they knew God. Because they're advertising where their satisfaction. You can go to every preacher's meeting. Every day of the week in the state of Georgia. You can go to every teen meeting. Every day in the state of Georgia. You can go to every ladies meeting. And it's not all it does is make you feel good. But it's not making you good until you recognize that living in dependence upon God is not three hours a day. It's not punching a clock. It is your life. And he says you ought to fear. Ever conducting your life in a way that displays satisfaction in something else other than God. Do you know Song of Solomon chapter 2 says the little foxes that spoil the vine? Do you know how David, the mighty man of God, came tumbling down? By just a few little things he let in. Solomon, the smartest man, how he came tumbling down just a few little things. Samson, the strongest man who ever lived. Just a few little things. Why? Because they didn't fear when their dependence was placed elsewhere. See, this is one crucial missing note in the modern Christianity. And one of the main reasons the church is is such a carbon copy of the world and now content with it. Used to be, we, people were shocked when they see oh, we, we are a lot like the world. Now, people are shocked when churches are not trying to be like the world. You know why churches are a carbon, carbon copy of the world? Well, maybe because they're not saved. Maybe they're not a part of the family of God. But another reason is because many think and behave as though grace somehow means that there's no cause for purity and sobriety in our behavior. But God's grace is is not to free us from living with hope and sobriety and fear, but God's grace is his enabling to do what he says and to be what we ought to be and love it at the same time. And so the sanction of judgment Is, is a motivation to fear. But God is gracious and he calls us back today to fear the behavior that leads to destruction fear the behavior that God saved you from. First Peter 1 and verse 17 is simply overlooked and ignored in our superficial adaptation to our culture today while God is calling us revival is coming out of that trap To be content with the behavior that leads to destruction. Well, look at what I'm going, everything's fine right where we are. But if you're on the freeway heading in the wrong direction, just because you haven't had a head-on collision yet doesn't mean stay there. God is calling us off of the highway, the road, the broad road that leads to destruction. But now notice on the other side of verse 17. He gives another reason for conducting ourselves in fear. Notice in verse 18. For as much as ye know. Now go back to the end of verse 17. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers. But... With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Amen. Notice Peter's reasoning. He's saying, conduct yourselves in fear, knowing. Well, the first motivation we saw and the first basis of our living in fear is fear not putting your hope in God. Fear not living by faith. Fear not having your dependence upon Christ. And the next motivation, he says, is to conduct yourselves in fear knowing because you know you were ransomed, not with small temporary values like gold and silver, but with an infinite eternal value, the blood of Jesus. So it boils down to this, fear. Because you've been ransomed, redeemed at an infinite cost. Does it make sense? Well, it didn't to me for a while. So I'm going to work our way through this because I want you to get it. Because this is where you can grow. This is where you can send your roots deeper and your branches higher. Don't just blank it out. Listen to Psalm 130 and verse 4. But there is forgiveness... With thee that thou mayest be feared. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Forgiveness leads to fear. That's what Peter's saying. There's an infinite ransom paid. What is it? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus to rescue you from your old ways. So he says, conduct yourself then in fear. In fact, Peter specifically stresses in verse 18 and 19, they surpassing value and eternal durability of the ransom paid for God's people. He says that gold and silver, they're corruptible, they're perishable. They're not durable. They don't last. And then he says, but the blood of Jesus is precious. It is infinitely valuable. So he stresses that the ransom paid for us is permanent and it is precious. It's not really striking home yet, so just hang on. The point in connection with verse 17 is this. In light of the preciousness, and the permanence of God's ransom for you as his child, we should all the more live with reverence and fear toward God. Let me suggest, as Peter is putting it, to think about it this way. He says we need to fear, first motivation, because of God's judgment. What is he going to judge? He's going to judge what are you really depending upon? And the second basis is fear. The more precious and permanent the ransom paid on our behalf, we should fear. We should fear living contrary of the value of the blood of Jesus. Now, for a long time people would say this and I would hear this and I think, well, you got a point there and we would, we would think it would read this way. The more precious and permanent the ransom paid on our behalf, the less we need to fear because of how valuable his blood is. And that is incredibly true in a certain sense. According to Romans 8, verse 33 and 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? And on and on and on. But what he's saying here is we were ransomed for the purpose of transformation. So he's saying this, fear living a life in which you conduct yourself as though the blood of Jesus were not precious. How cheap do you live your life? How cheap is your service? How cheap is your wardrobe? He said, I wear only the the designer clothes. I'm not talking about the label. I'm talking about what you've labeled yourself to reflect. Where you put your money, where you put your eye, What value do you place upon the blood of Jesus? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, he says in verse 18 that the design of the ransom, the redemption, is to rescue you. From your futile, empty, vain way of life. you see that? Notice verse 18. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain, empty conversation, lifestyle received by tradition from your fathers. See, the ransom's aim, God's ransom and payment, His purpose and design in this verse is not, listen, is not listen. It's not forgiveness. That's not the purpose of His blood here in this passage. The purpose of the blood of Jesus is your transformation. Amen. Amen. Jesus shed His infinitely precious blood to change our conduct. Titus chapter 2, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. But it didn't stop there. He goes on to say, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So when Peter says, conduct yourselves in the fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the bad conduct by the blood of Jesus, he means fear, conducting yourself in a way that shows that the blood of Jesus is not valuable to you. If your heart overflows with celebration and hope as you meditate on the eternal permanence and infinite preciousness of the ransom Jesus paid with his blood, great! Because God wants you to soar with exhilaration. But his point is not that we would ever just be content to live with with just happy thoughts because I don't have to go to hell. He wants us to understand that the significance is that it does something to us inside out. So let me summarize it this way. If I can just put it systematically. God's purpose in the blood of Jesus is Of course, our justification or we would not be saved, but it is also our sanctification. In other words, it's our pardon. So we can be saved, but it's also our purity. They cannot be separated. You cannot separate Jesus saving a person to clean them and to change them. Somehow we've got the notion, I got saved, so I am on my way to heaven. Well, would you like to be disciple? No, I don't want to be disciple. Well, I've got a question for you. Are you really in the same family as Jesus? Because he didn't save you just to cleanse you of your sin. He saved you to clean you of your sin, to change your life from the inside out. That's what verse 18 is about. Therefore, if in our conduct we are tempted to act as though the preciousness and the permanence of the blood of Jesus were powerless, impotent to hold us back from sin, that we just have to give in to sin, then you should fear. You should have a dreadful fear because if you belong to him, your heavenly father, uh, he's a good father, consistent father, and he's not going to tolerate You devaluing the power of the blood of His Son. See, if our lives bear constant witness to the powerlessness of the blood of Jesus, then you really don't have your hope in Him. It's possible that you don't even belong to Him. And that is a fearful prospect. So to sum this up, hope in the grace of God. Have a decided Hope in God's abundant grace. And fear, not hoping in the grace of God. Fear not walking by faith. Fear not depending upon Christ. And fear having a behavior that would show you don't trust in the all-satisfying preciousness of the love of Jesus as demonstrated through his blood shed for you. Let's stand together, please.